Now, if we were speaking with a person who has not grown up in the church, who really uh, does not know that Jesus is the way to be saved, or might have heard it but does not accept it, there's an important progression that needs to happen in their minds to get to the point of why it's important to discover who Jesus is. And let me give you this first um, analogy. The Bible talks a lot about um, that a person's spirit is much like um, a person dwelling a house. And so my spirit dwells within my body, and the body is like the house to my spirit. And um, just like a person can move out of their house, a person's spirit can, can leave their body. And physical death is not the end of life. And this is a, a very important first realization before we even get to Jesus. Right? And so we're going to get to why believing in Jesus is important. But uh, as a, a foundational first understanding, when I speak with a person that is not a Christian, who has not really um, understood those things, one of the first questions that I ask is, do you believe that there is more to life than here on earth? Right? And so uh, if a person doesn't believe that there's an afterlife, right? like once you physically die, boom, that's it, it's over, then it really doesn't matter what I believe or how I live because it, it's ended right there. And so as a first realization, uh, of understanding that there, there's more to life than just the earth and my physical body. And if a person can come to terms and agree to that, that question, do you believe that there's more to life than this earth and your physical body? If they can agree to that, that leads to the next question. What do you think that would be? In my mind, okay, if you believe that it doesn't end here and it's something after death, then I, I try to pinpoint what is it beyond death? Okay? And so yes, you agree that there's more to life. There has to be more than just your physical body. If you say yes to that, then is the afterlife like a heaven or a hell? Right? And so now you're just trying to define what's the afterlife. First, you have to agree that there is an afterlife. After you agree, you're trying to define what it is. Right? Do you believe that then after you die, that there are these places, can, can I call it heaven or some utopia, right? a, a spiritual paradise? Do you believe that there is this rest or this bliss that you can experience after life? And do you also believe that there are some consequences? That Can there be a heaven and a hell? Okay? So we're trying to define the afterlife now. Okay? And if they can say, yes, I believe that there is a heaven, I think then the next logical question is, how does one get in? Doesn't that make sense? Right? So first, you come to the place, do you believe in an afterlife. After you believe in it, you define it. And if you've defined the afterlife as heaven being there, the next question is, how does one enter? Are there requirements for entry? It's like you go into a theme park, right? Or you, you enter a country. Do you need a ticket or a visa of some sort to be granted entrance into this place called heaven? That's a very important sequence of questions. Afterlife, defining afterlife, then how do you get in? So kind of understanding that, that's now why we get to the importance of believing in Jesus. Because now we're trying to answer that third question, right? What are the requirements for entrance? Right? What are the requirements to get into this heaven if there is such a place? Okay. 
And so in terms of entrance into heaven, uh, what's required, right? Like, I remember applying for my uh, immigrant visa into the United States. There were certain requirements. There was a, a long application that I had to go through. There was a medical process that I had to uh, pass. And there were so many other things that I had to kind of tick off all of the boxes before they, boom, stamped my passport. It says, okay, you're granted entrance, right? And so if heaven is there and if there are some gates and you've heard of those pearly gates that many people kind of talk about, that what is required to get through those gates into heaven, right? What are the boxes that you need to tick off, right? And the Bible is clear when it talks about that heaven is, 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 a, is a place where God dwells, and with God there is no sin. And so there needs to be holiness or purity in order to be granted access into heaven. Right? But the problem is, and that's where I get to the second Roman numeral, is that all kind of fall short of that mark. And the Bible talks about that in Romans, right? That there is this thing called sin, and sin is simply defined as missing the mark. And so when I have this, this dirt or sin in my life, and that would um, deny me access into this heaven, that I fall short of its requirement, and that's what the Bible talks about. Jesus had a conversation with um, a fellow by the name of Nicodemus, and it's recorded for us in, in, in the Gospel of John. And as this teacher was conversing with him, Jesus speaks this statement to him, and this is what he says. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I, as you look at that, cannot see. And so it's a matter of kind of vision, right? Like what you can see. Like you need to be born again to be able to even catch a glimpse and know it's reality, right? right. You know, in the Bible, in what Paul wrote, it says, um, the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. Right? It's talking about you cannot see. And he goes on to say, Satan has blinded the eyes of the lost. Right? And so that... Have you ever talked to someone about something and they just couldn't get it? Like, no, like you saw it, it's clear as day, but they just couldn't see it. They couldn't grasp it, right? They just couldn't understand it. And in the conversation of Jesus, it can quickly get to that, right? That no matter how clearly you believe that Jesus is the way uh, and believing in Him is entrance into, into heaven, that there are plenty of people in the world that no matter how many times they hear that information, they just don't see it about not being able to see that. And Jesus is talking about this idea of being born again so that your eyes would be open to even grasp the reality of a kingdom of God, that it's even there, that you acknowledge that it's there. And once you acknowledge that, that, that brings you down that trail to ultimately figuring out how you get there and ultimately believing in Jesus. But it's this, this falling short, the sin and being blinded and having to be born again. And this idea of being born again, Paul talks about that. You know, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed. Behold, uh, new things have come. And this idea of newness and walking by faith, it's also talked about, for we walk by faith and not by sight. And this I want to link back to this idea of sight, being able to see. That when a person has been given faith, that we... Um, can see God. There is, in a sense, we're not walking by the physical sight of what we 
can see and cannot see. Because physically, I, I cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Right? And so Paul is saying that I, I'm not going by what I can physically see. I'm going by the faith of my heart. And in a sense, you're opening up the spiritual eyes. Right? Being born again is the opening of the spiritual eyes to be able to see. And so now we're talking in this about discovering Jesus. And why I'm talking about all of this is no matter how much we try to point people to Jesus and we convince them by quoting passages and all of the rest, there needs to be a spiritual thing that happens in the life of a person. They need to spiritually be reborn. And from there, the eyes are, are, are new. It's no longer seeing with physical eyes. There's sp spiritual sight that is happening. And I come to understand the reality of heaven and then who Jesus is. And too often, if we're focusing on logic and reason, uh, people can still be blinded to that. And so you, you, you sit here today and I think by and large all of us here have opened our eyes and we've been born again and we see who Jesus is. But that's a very important thing first to understand that it is by faith and that there is this spiritual thing that must happen to be born again. Why? Because all of us have sinned and we, we can't see it in our natural selves. The third thing that I'll talk about uh, in this is faith versus works. Now, much of our lives, and I've said this before, right? Much of our lives have been groomed uh, to performance-based living. And what do I mean by that? I mean, I, I've said this to you before. Right? You meet somebody, and what's the first thing, uh, one of the first series of things that you ask them, well, you know, what do you do, right? Well, what do you do for a living? You know, what, what fills up your week, right? We want to know their career and kind of those things. And, and a lot of the time, uh, that's an important question because what we're really uh, saying is, you know, your identity equals your activity. What you do is who you are. Right? And so uh, we ask that to try to get a better grasp of an individual. But you, you peel these back and we, we realize that uh, people give us approval if we do things well. Right? That we feel more loved and accepted when we do good and we feel useless and maybe unwanted if we do things bad. And I think I shared this with you one time, you know, years, when, years ago when Jacob was a toddler. I remember disciplining him one time, and um, I mean, it was over something as frivolous as a bag of chips, I think it was, right? And, uh, and not eating the chips right before dinner. I, I think it was that type of a conversation. And, you know, I, I spoke a little sternly with him, and I, I tried to discipline him uh, in this particular conversation. And his immediate rebuttal to my discipline was, Dad, do you still love me? And it really floored me as the, the father of a toddler at the time. And uh, too often, uh, you know, because he felt he did something wrong, and now my love for him was in jeopardy because of his bad action. Right? And isn't that train of thought something that carries forward with us into our adolescence and also into our adult lives? That too often, I base my acceptance and approval on whether I do good or bad. And it starts from its infancy when we were children, but it sticks with us, right? And when we do good in our work, we feel more accepted by our bosses and our colleagues. When we do good in the family or in the home, by our family members or spouses or siblings or parents, that the people in our lives that we feel as though we have to perform and do something for them to show them that we are good people. And we base our identity on our activity, good activity or bad activity. 
But when we come to faith in Jesus and what it means to be granted access into heaven, that we need to fall away from this thinking, right? Because a lot of religions is that, right? That religion, in many people's eyes, is the pursuit of God. You try to, to search sacred scriptures and, and writings. You try to, to do things to, 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 to free yourself from the encumbrances of the world. And then you try to pursue God. And a lot of religion is man climbing to God. That we're climbing this mountain and he's way on the peak of that mountain and I'm trying to climb it to reach him. I'm trying to, to be more pure. I'm trying to think the right thoughts, do the right things so that I can get closer to God and so that he would accept me. And that mentality of living by performance, not only does it live with us in our careers, in our families, in our, in our spaces here, but that carries forward into how we relate to God many times, or at least in many people's religious lives. Right? We try to, to work for God's approval. But the Christian message is so different. The Christian message is not man's pursuit of God. It's God's pursuit of man. It's God saying, I see that you are sinful. And the Bible says that there is none righteous, that none even want to seek after God, the Bible says. Right? And so God understanding that there is not anything in the inclination of man that seeks after him. And so God has to initiate the process. It's not man initiating and saying, God, I want you. And God saying, okay, now that you want me, I'll accept you. It's God saying, no, I want you. And he goes and he doesn't act in the heart of a person and he, and he rebirths it. And then from there, then man can come after God. But before that initiation from God, nothing can happen. Right? And so the Christian life and discovering Jesus happens first by faith, not by works. Not by works. Another very important realization, fourthly, is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In talking about our Christian faith and what it means to, 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 to walk this path of faith, um, we need to first realize that we are not alone. If, if you can, can you flip in your Bibles to John 14? I just want to read a short passage on this. John 14, verse 12. We'll start there. John 14. Verse 12, it says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, Jesus speaking, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. Now, what an amazing thing, right, that Jesus says that if you follow him, you're going to do greater things than Jesus did. I mean, he did a lot of great things in the Gospels, right, if you read through it. And Jesus is saying, you're going to do greater works. And whatever you ask in my name that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he goes on to talk, right? And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, and that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, but it does not behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Right? Will be in you. And so this um, indwelling of the Spirit, this is important because in our Christian lives, we're not alone. We're not trying to, 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 to walk this life of faith on our own, right? And that the Spirit of God is with us. And it's a, it's a teacher. It's a guide, right? And that He's guiding us in all truth. And there's so many passages of that in, in the Scriptures. And so the Christian life is, is a spiritual one, not just in, in its beginnings of faith, but also in its constant walking of being indwelt by the Spirit. And the, the fifth Roman numeral that I'll share is talking about the assurance of salvation. Uh, 
assurance, right? Um, to be sure of something, uh, to, to not have doubt, to have full hope. And this assurance of salvation, that first sequence of questions, more to life than this earth, so after physical death, is there something? Is there a heaven and a hell and then granted entrance? How do you get into heaven? If a person has an assurance of life after death, that frees us from something that is, is, that is just dominating humanity, and that's the fear of death. Right? To, I mean, how often, uh, you know, we have this fear, you know, we, we insure ourselves against death. We try to protect ourselves and put ourselves in environments that are safe so as not to be in danger of death, right? And so uh, this assurance of salvation frees us from the fear, not that we don't want to die, right? But to know that even if I do die, I'm okay. And this hit, this hit home for me over the last little bit. I remember, I remember the, the morning, that Sunday morning when I went to the ER, I woke up that morning anxious. The first thing that I looked up is I dug up old emails about life insurance policies that morning. And this is before any episode really even happened, right? And I, I'm thinking about uh, my wife and, and the two boys and, you know, are they going to be okay if I pass on? Right? I intentionally got a 30-year term life insurance because I wanted to insure myself through the age that my dad passed away at the age of 66. Right? And I insured myself at the age of 39, I think it was, so I'll be insured through the age of 69, right through the age that my father passed away. And these are things that I'm thinking of, but not because I'm afraid to die. Right? And in the event that I do die, I'm okay with it. Now I have a, a, a lot of things that I don't want to do because I have children that I still want to raise. I have a, life that I, a wife that I still want to love and I have a life that I still want to live, a church that I still want to shepherd. And these are things that I still want to do in my life. But even if I did die, I'd be okay with it, right? And that assurance of salvation, because I realize exactly what Paul said, you know, that if I'm going to live, it's Christ, but if I'm going to die, actually, it's my benefit. It's the gain of my life, that I'll be in a better place, that there is no pain on that side. Yes, I'm leaving behind a lot of things that I still want to do and, and a lot of people that I still want to be with. But I realize that once I'm granted access and entry into heaven, that those feelings of, of, of insecurity, the feelings of fear and doubt and, and all of the uneasiness, that all of those things will fall away and I'll see humanity in its perfection. I'll, I'll be able to look upon the life that I lived with the eyes that are in a state of perfection in heaven and I can look upon them differently. I don't have to feel the anxiety that, that I might have felt before. And I have this assurance. And this is an important thing to know that we will be in heaven. It takes away so much of the fear. Like what are the things we fear? You know, if I were to ask you to write a short list in that, I'm sure you can populate that quite quickly. That there are things that you fear, right? If you're losing, if you're not having, all right? But when we know that we are saved, when we know that we do have eternal life and that we will be with God, that, that really takes away so many of the fears. That when a person has the assurance of salvation, five things happen. Okay? Uh, the first is this, Jesus becomes real. Right? So if you have faith and you have the assurance of salvation, these five things, at least these five things will happen. First, Jesus is going to become real to you, that he's not a mythical figure. He's not this, uh, the, the, the thing of, uh, of, 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 of fantasy, but he's real. Okay? He's real. And that, that 
series of questions. It's a real series. And we understand, okay, if I do die, there's something else, that there is a heaven, and that in order to get here, I need Jesus. He becomes real in that way. Right? The second thing that happens is, I know that God is a heavenly Father. Right? That, that I'm a child of God. That I have a Father in heaven that dearly loves me. I'm, I'm not alone in this way. I'm absolutely sure of that. The third thing that happens is I'm assured of this, that I know the Bible is God's Word. It's not just an instruction manual uh, for good living. Um, It's not just something to reference. Um, uh, But it's a word that God has left for me, uh, that He has specifically uh, put down these words in these, this, this narrative story recorded for me to guide me in life and through what it means to live eternally, right? That it's God's Word. That it, it's not something that just contains a few elements of what God wanted to say. That the Bible is. It's God's Word. To me, that that becomes a sure thing. The fourth is this. It's that I have true peace and joy. And this goes into taking away that fear of death as well, right? That if I know that I will be in heaven and that my, my, my life is saved, I have eternal life, that, like I, I don't get the job that I wanted. I, don't, I didn't get the thing that I wanted, the position, the possession. I'm okay with that because it all pales in comparison to this greater thing that I have locked in, right? I got it locked in. And salvation and knowing that I, I will be with God, it brings a true peace, a true joy. And the last is that if Jesus is real and God is your heavenly Father and you know God's word is true and it is his word to you and you have this peace and joy, that brings this desire to want to share God's love with other people. And so a person who is assured of his or her salvation ultimately will get to the place where he or she would want to share that, that message of love with the people around him or her. And the sixth Roman numeral is salvation versus discipleship. And I think this is another important thing to, to understand. Jesus is Savior and Lord, right? Um, yeah. There are some, you know, like those, um, those um, repentance prayers that you believe in Jesus as Lord and as Savior. And the, this idea of who Jesus is, there's so many descriptions that he can have, right? He's the Son of God. The Bible calls him the Prince of Peace, right? That God is the first and the last, right? That he is the Ancient of Days. There's so many descriptions of God. But uh, two descriptions that I want to talk about of God and of Jesus in particular is Savior and Lord. And the idea of Jesus as Savior, meaning that He saved me, right? That my life um, is no longer going to die and be left on its own, that God has saved me. And this idea of Lord, I mean, if you think of the original, right? Somebody who is uh, like a, a, a majesty, somebody who is of rank over your life, right? Somebody who has authority over you, that's your Lord, right? And so uh, this idea of Savior and Lord, these are two important descriptions of God. 
that when we come to faith in Jesus, He becomes our Savior. After we are saved, it is about the Lordship of Christ over our lives. And let me give you these comparisons. Because salvation and discipleship come out of that, right? So um, our salvation is by Jesus being our Savior. And the discipleship aspect of our faith is really about Jesus being our Lord. Okay? And so in salvation, because Jesus is our Savior, the focus is on the cross of Christ. So when Jesus saves you, your focus is knowing that what Christ did on the cross has saved me, right? But in discipleship, when Jesus is my Lord, the focus is actually taking up my own cross and following after Him. There's, there's a different dynamic there, right? And so salvation, yes, Jesus, thank you for saving me and dying on the cross for me. But in discipleship, I say, Lord, I take up my cross and I follow after you. I deny myself. There's a different focus. Right? In salvation, we receive a gift. What is that? Eternal life. Right? We receive the gift of eternal life. But in discipleship, we give a gift. What is that? We give our bodies in service and in worship, Paul talks about in Romans 12. Right? In salvation, it's a one-time decision. Right? That you just make a decision to believe in Jesus at one time in your life. It's not like you have to, to constantly always say, Jesus, save me, right? And it's not like I remember being a youth pastor, right? Every single summer camp, the same kids would have that <laughs> come up to the altar, right? Every single year because somehow they felt like they lost their salvation this last year, right? It just happened, right? And they feel as though they have to have it, that, that experience again, this conversion, right? But no. That when a person is saved, it is actually a one-time experience in your life. It happens once. And from there, after then, in discipleship, it's a lifelong commitment. Right? It's the process now of living with Jesus day by day. Right? So salvation starts the process of discipleship. I want you to understand these dynamics. The last one comparison that I'll give to you is that the focus of salvation is eternal life. The focus of discipleship is eternal rewards. Right? In salvation, I'm securing for myself a place in heaven, in eternal life. Right? But in discipleship, what I'm doing is I'm building for my eternal life, I'm actually building eternal rewards there. When Jesus says that He's bringing rewards for those and what they've done in their lives, this is an aspect of discipleship that, that I'm building rewards in heaven. Okay, And so this is a different focus, but both are important. But what I want to focus on in this is in discovering Jesus in salvation, this is an important thing that starts the process. But the Christian life after discovering Jesus must always be on discipleship, on following Jesus, on offering our bodies, on this lifelong journey and knowing that God is watching and, and seeing what I do and will repay accordingly. That He has these rewards for us in heaven. And this is kind of where our eyes must go in the Christian life. But too often, I think, we, 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 we fixate on what we receive, right? That we, we come to church to be blessed. That we're, we're thinking about what God will give to us. And this is that, that infant faith 
This is just always trying to get something from God. And this happens in the beginning because we need salvation. We need God to come to us. We need His gifts for us. And this is very important, but this is the beginning process. This is the rebirth thing of our lives. And from there we begin to grow in maturity. And then what happens is we begin to understand that the Christian life is about following in discipleship. Let me give you this important comparison in John. John 8, 30-32, it says this. As He spoke these things, this is speaking about, this is just describing, you know, Jesus was speaking many things, right? And as Jesus was speaking those things as recorded in the Gospel of John, it says this, many came to believe in Him. Many believed. And so Jesus is speaking words of authority, talking about the kingdom of heaven, and so many great things through the Gospels. And in this particular instance, as he was speaking these things, it says many people started to believe in Jesus. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, to the very people that believed in him, this is what he said, If you continue in my word, then you are truly not believers, of mine, but disciples. So now he's contrasting. People have believed in him. This is kind of like that beginning problem. Okay, I acknowledge you, you're real to me, right? But now he begins to flip a switch and he begins to turn a corner and says, okay, I know you believe in me, but if you want to be a disciple, there's this aspect of continuing in his teaching. This is about now a process of life, of growth, of maturity that is happening, right? And this is the path of discipleship. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free, he says. So I'm trying to compare and contrast this idea of Jesus as Savior and Lord. And how we need to understand that the Christian life begins with Him as Savior, but it must be lived with Him as Lord. It's the ongoing thing. And as a last application to today, let me just talk about Christian growth. And the first aspect of Christian growth going forward for any believer in Jesus, it needs to start with personal Bible study, a a commitment to that, right? Um, a, A commitment to read the Word, to meditate on it, to live it, to apply it. That, that needs to be a first commitment because we need to abide in the Word, Jesus was saying, if we want to be a disciple. We need to know the truth. And where is the truth contained? It's contained in the words that God has given to us, the Word of God, the Scriptures. Right? And so this is a very important aspect, foundation, of the Christian life in discipleship with Christ being Lord, that we need to commit ourselves to the study of His Word. Why is this important? I mean, if you think about it, Everybody has a unique religious experience, right? And in this subjective environment, we need to have an objective standard, an objective truth. Isn't this what a standard of measurement is? I mean, we have a standard for what an inch is. We have a standard for what an ounce or a gallon is. I mean, imagine going to the gas station and paying for a gallon of gasoline, but the gas station owner says, you know what, my gallon is only a liter. Well, I mean, what is that, right? You need to have an objective standard that applies to everybody, 
Otherwise, it's a free-for-all, right? There's, there's, there's no consistency, right? If you bring out a ruler and you measure something, this is 12 inches, you can say with confidence to a, a customer or to a friend or to somebody that this is this length because you've measured it against an objective standard. Right? This is the importance of Scripture. It's this objective rule for life. It's to know that, that how I want to think about eternity in my life is not just so subjective that what is true for me is true for me, what is true for you is true for you. We need to have a standard that is beyond you and me, but that is just truth. Regardless of how I want to interpret it, it's just truth. It's a standard. It's set. That's what Scripture is, and that's why it's so important to, to study Scripture and to know that standard of truth, that rule. The second aspect of personal growth in the Christian life that I want to talk about is, is prayer, personal prayer. Simply communication with God, establishing an ongoing link between us and Him. Bible says pray without ceasing. Right? The Bible says that God's house was a house of prayer and this idea of prayer is so important in the life of a believer in his or her Christian life. Jesus says ask. Seek, knock, right? It'll be given. You'll find. It'll be opened. Prayer. The third one is praise and worship. And the Bible talks a lot about singing to God. Now, like I mentioned, I'm not the greatest of singers, right? So it's not talking about like singing on key, right? <laughs> Necessarily. But just singing to God, a new song. Uh, allowing our praises to rise to Him. That God is a musical God, right? That, he, that, that song, that heaven will be filled with praise. That there will be angels and, and people who populate heaven. All they're going to be doing is singing. Worthy, worthy are you. You know, Lamb of God. And praise and worship as we do it in our lives here is an important precursor to the praise that we will have in heaven. And so praise, worship, personal and corporate. right? And the last one that I want to talk about that we need to be committed to in Christian growth is fellowship and accountability within the church. That the Christian life was never meant to be lived in isolation. And I know nowadays you can go to virtual churches, catch a sermon, sermons online, give through an app. And there's so many things that you can do to stay disconnected yet still feel like you're a Christian. <laughs> there's so many ways that you can do that. Right? A lot of large churches have multiple services over the weekend. You just catch the service and then you leave. And it's so easy to have this idea of what church is. But in reality, the church is so much more than that, right? That the Christian faith must be more than that. That there's this idea of overlapping of lives, of not only praying together and worshiping together, but living our lives before God in a way that's accountable to one another. Right? Bearing one another's burdens. This communal idea of, of faith and the Christian life is so important in Scripture that we should not forsake the gathering together in faith. And we'll talk more about this idea of church uh, and, and in fellowship and in accountability through, you know, 201. 
But that's where I want to leave today with these four um, applications of where the Christian life should go post-salvation. That there needs to be a commitment to studying Scripture, a connection through prayer, a life that is filled with worship to God, and also in connection with the believers that are around us.